Hey all you spooky listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast, where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. Hey, you guys. Hope you guys had a great weekend. Um, I did absolutely nothing. (laughs) I pretty much had a lazy girls weekend with one of my friends. We tried to do her hair, you know, we, you know, didn't go very well. Um, she wanted a money piece. We gave her a headband. (laughs) So did I ever claim to be a professional? No. Does it make for a good story now? Yes. Um, anyway, so the story that we're going to be going through, um, this one is more than likely going to be in two parts, so just go ahead and make sure that you know that. We'll probably do part one today, get halfway through, and then do part two, um, in two weeks. So, just so you're aware, um, the next part will be February 13th, okay? So, just kind of be prepared for that. Um, this case that I chose today really kind of stuck with me because it was just like I was reading through my list and for some reason I just I looked up Sierra go um, excuse me Sierra jogging okay and it was just like kind of a wake-up call you never know when your life is gonna be cut short or your daily activity that you do every single day or every single week, it just changes abruptly and just you're not here anymore. So we're gonna go over Sierra's story today um, and the rest on Monday, February 13th. Um, I will be posting photos after I get this part one recorded because it's going to be extremely long. Um, so I'll be working on the Instagram post after instead of before, like I normally do. Um, but yeah, let's jump right into it and let's go. So Sierra was born February 11th, 1996 in Delta, Ohio to Sheila Vakulik and Tom Joggin. Uh, she was referred to C by friends and family, so that was like her little nickname they gave her. Sierra had went to school at Evergreen High School, and she graduated in 2014. After that, she moved to Metamora, Ohio. Uh, she moved in with her grandparents. Looks like, you know, she wanted to be a little bit closer to college because she did enroll at the University of Toledo, which was like a college of business, and she was studying human resource management. So she had a lot going for her. Now, she was 20 years old, and she did spend most of her days outside of school with her boyfriend of seven years. Um, His name was Josh. And just some facts about Toledo College. Um, There's like 2,300 students, 10 programs of study. Um, 91% seven-year average job replacement rate after they graduate. And the scholarships can be awarded annually as like over $500,000. So, 
it's um it's a very very nice school um if you look it up like i did you're just like whoa <laughs> you know it's just one of those things that you're just like it's kind of like berry college almost like in georgia i remember everyone was like oh berry college berry college you know this is like a castle pretty much right it's very very beautiful um it was built in 1931 and it's absolutely huge and when i say huge uh not only does it look like a castle okay they have in their rec center they have a rock wall indoor soccer arena like a whole soccer arena and an olympic size pool including water slides saunas etc it's super fancy now this school is ranked in the third tier at 285 out of a total of 440 national universities included in the most recent survey so it's it's pretty on up there as well so this tells you how competitive the school is and how serious their requirements are let me tell you the acceptance rate at university of toledo is 93.7 percent for every 100 applicants 94 are submitted this means the school is nearly open to admissions okay needless to say she was really smart had good things going for her until she went for her daily ride with her boyfriend on a bike never came home and here's the story so at approximately 6:45 on july 19 2016 sierra was riding her bike home from her boyfriend's house which she'd done often while he rode alongside her on his motorcycle now, they did part ways near County Road 6 near Metamora, Ohio in Fulton County. He turned around, went back home like he always does, you know. They parted with a kiss, that kind of thing. And she continued down her normal path home. She didn't have, you know, second thought about it. When she did not show up at home that evening, which was noted by her mother, who went to her parents' home, because remember, Sierra was living with her grandparents, um, she noted that Sierra's bedroom light was still off and it was very very odd because Sierra is like super close with her family so if you guys you know have that same relationship you know me 28 okay about to be 29 this year I still call my mom constantly and we're in separate states I'm like hey I'm going to the grocery store hey I'm doing this like I call her all the time so that's that's kind of the feeling that I get that Sierra did. She always let her family knew where she was, what she was doing, you know, that kind of thing. And if she wasn't able to show up or wasn't able to be there, she would let them know. And that's what her mom said as well. She found it very odd that she never said, hey, I'm not going to be able to come home on time. She just didn't show. Now, it was an odd feeling that turned into panic when her boyfriend Josh, around 930, called Sheila and let her know, hey, I can't reach Sierra on her phone. I've called her. It's gone straight to voicemail. I've sent several texts. She never opened them. And he was like, well, did she make it home? She told him, no, um, she never made it home. I haven't seen her. And he said that he texted and called around 8 to 9 p.m. Now, after Sheila tried to contact her also, with many failed attempts, she called the police immediately and reported her missing and went out with Josh to search for Sierra. So they got in Sheila's car 
after Josh came over, right? Um, they didn't find her, unfortunately. Um, they even stopped at the fire department where Sheila spotted a police officer sitting in the police vehicle. She got out, explained everything, was like, hey, my daughter's missing. Um, and, you know, she was just asking for help. She explained where she was, when she was supposed to be home, etc. Now, later in the evening, police informed Sheila that there was police activity on County Road 6. Now, of course, they questioned Josh because he was the last one to have seen Sierra that evening, and he told them about their bike ride. Now, on some royal roads between some cornfields, and even showed them a Snapchat video that he took of Sierra on her purple bike, just smiling and riding along like they normally do. Now, he said he was on a motorcycle at the time, and they stayed close together until they reached a certain point on County Road 6. Now, when Sierra said she wanted to go the rest of the way by herself back to her house, they shared a kiss, parted ways, and left in different directions. He went back the way they came. She, you know, rode on to her normal route. Now, that was around like 6.45, and that's the last time he saw her or spoke to her. He also told police he did tell her he would contact her later, which he did. He called, he texted to no avail, remember? Um, she never responded. Now, police noticed in the Snapchat video that Sierra was wearing her hair in a ponytail, neon, yellow, or green, and it, um, like a, what is it, that highlighter color that was popular a while ago, you know what I mean? That yellow-green kind of color. Um, it's like a yellow and green kind of gray tank top. She had sunglasses. She had a Fitbit. Um, same yellow and green, dark gray shorts with a stripe. Same kind of color, you know, white and yellow green tennis shoes. And that she had a checkered dish towel over her bike seat, which, you know, may not be that important. But what was important was she had the Fitbit watch. And if anyone has a Fitbit watch, you know that it tracks your location. So with that very important lead, they went to tracking her phone and her Fitbit. And at the same time, police over on County Road 6 started a search for Sierra where Josh last seen her. Now, sometime after seven on July 19th, a local farmer named Choi um, was driving south on County Road 6 when he noticed a helmet that was beside the road. It was like the east side of the road. Now, on his way home, he did pick up the helmet and toss it into the back of his truck because he was like, oh, maybe somebody threw it out, you know, whatever. But after seeing and hearing the police activity from the County Road 6 area, he thought maybe it would be a important piece, uh, you know, of evidence of whatever was going on like I, I picked this up it may be important and he took it back so he turned it over to law enforcement the next day as the search continues Jeremy Simon who was an officer with Fulton County Sheriff's Office searched as well with his canine partner right so they were trying to find her bike um, and this happened late hours july 19th all the way until the next morning so shortly after midnight is when he saw something right so upon inspection on the east side of the road he saw many disturbed corn stalks like you know like broken or like to the side like it just wasn't normal right he also smelled gasoline 
And then he noticed a motorcycle track, like a tire track, um, a box of fuses. He saw some women's sunglasses lying there. And then he found the purple mountain bike. After he found the bike, Sheila and Josh said, yes, that is hers. We are identifying it. That is Sierra's bike. Now, investigators also found a checkered dish towel with a reddish-brown stain approximately a thousand feet north of the County Road 6 abduction site. Now, police started to believe that maybe Sierra was indeed abducted, so they widened their search. Now, the BCI crime scene specialist, Megan Roberts, noticed two areas in the cornfield on the west side of County Road 6 that were, quote, consistent with paths or points of entry or exit. Now, in the west cornfield, agents found broken corn stalks as well, reddish-brown stains on some corn leaves, and pattern impressions in the loose dirt. About 20 feet into the same cornfield, Roberts found a green sock with also reddish-brown stains on it. Approximately 35 feet south of the location, Roberts found a pair of men's sunglasses and an orange-handled screwdriver. They then decided to interview surrounding residents, as one would, which would lead to James Worley. He lived around the area. He had a three-acre property, which was west of Toledo. He invited them into his home, seemed very friendly, very cooperative, you know, like they normally do. He gave them about a 90-minute interview, some on recording, some not, um, and this was July 19th, by the way. Now, let's talk a little bit about James Worley before we continue our story here. Although, we're not going to really like this man after we get the story done, but I'm going to give you some background, okay? So, he was born April 8, 1959 in Tacoma, Washington. He also, ironically, graduated from Evergreen High School, the same high school Sierra went years later. He graduated in 1978. Now, his childhood, eh, as one could guess, it was pretty bad. His parents exposed him to physical abuse, probably verbal abuse, and alcoholism as well. Now, education-wise, he had a 1.5 grade point average, which was said, you know, was kind of due to him smoking pot from like 14 years old. Whether that's true or not, you know. Now, records show that Worley's IQ, though, in early life was determined to be around 97, which is right at the 50th percentile. Now, he briefly attended Owens Community College in Toledo, but he, you know, withdrew in 2000 and lacked sufficient credits to complete a degree, so he just kind of left it. His final grade point average at Owens Community College was two. Now, after that, he worked various jobs in Toledo. Um, he did have two prior arrests. One that I found, um, which we'll get to like in a second, but it was like right after his prison release for the first one in 2000, he took up, you know, growing pot plants and possessing weapons while on disability, both felonies at the time, mind you. He was arrested and charged and re-released in 2002. So he only spent two years in prison now or in jail. Um, also to note an assessment by the um, pre-sentence evaluation psychologist that James had to 
you know, because he had to have one done. Um, they said he had like a personality disorder with narcissistic, antisocial, and adequate features. Um, and that was Dr. Fabian. Um, he also said that he could have had head injuries in early life or concussions, um, which could have been like, you know, a reason why he was the way he was. We're not going to let him off that easy, but you never know. It, it does happen to where if you look into the study of the brain, right, especially in serial killers, they do have like a chemical imbalance or they do have previous head injuries. So the brain is a very sensitive organ, I must say. Now, which after some tests, you know, Dr. Fabian also diagnosed Worley with a possible mild neurocognitive disorder due to concessive history. So just kind of a FYI, um, that could have been one of the reasons why he wasn't all right in the head, okay? So, moving on, we'll go back to our story of discovery. So, you know, back to our story here. When he invited the police in with a smile and being all cooperative, and they asked him questions about where he'd been, if he saw anything, etc., etc., this is the account he gave. He said that around 5.45 or 6, wasn't sure, on July 19th, the day Sierra disappeared, right, he departed his property on his motorcycle. Now, he said his motorcycle stalled when he was driving on County Road U. He got the motorcycle running again, but then, of course, it stalled once more when he was riding down County Road 6. Now, he did stop near a cornfield that abutted a wheat field, okay, where he saw a blue bike and a light gray bike laying on the ground. He pulled his motorcycle into the cornfield out of view from the road because he was planning on taking one of the bikes home, um, leaving his motorcycle behind, right? But he changed his mind and alternated between getting his motorcycle to start and riding it and pushing it home. He was just trying his best, okay, is what he was saying. He did not see anyone on a trip and got home around 10. Now, he did tell investigators that he lost some belongings when the motorcycle broke down. He volunteered that his helmet, his fuses, a screwdriver, and sunglasses were missing. Coincidence? No. Now, James asserted his innocence multiple times during the interview but also asked whether the police had any evidence against him, such as fingerprints. Like, you don't just ask that unless you know you got fingerprints laying around, right? Now, another witness in the area described seeing a passenger, um, kind of like a passenger van, driving at a high rate through the area and provided a license plate number to authorities. Now, once they ran that license plate, guess who that came back to? James Worley. Now, he also, just an FYI, had been convicted and sentenced in 1990 for assaulting and attempting to kidnap another woman. We'll get into that now. We're going to take it back to July 4th, 1990. Um, we're going to talk about his first offense, okay? 
So her name was Robin Gardner. She was 26 and she was also coincidentally riding her bike in a royal area around Lucas County, only about a mile from her house. Okay, so not to get off track here, but just remember it can happen outside of your front door. Okay, so always be prepared, ladies. Always be, you know, um, prepared just in case and aware of your surroundings. That goes for men too. You know, just, yeah, just be careful. Now, um, she was riding down the road, right? As she normally does, just like Sierra, approximately a mile from her house. And all of a sudden, a pickup truck struck her from behind running her and the bike off into a ditch. Now, when she saw the pickup truck, she realized, wait a minute, that is the same truck that I saw moments ago past me and was going in the opposite direction. Now, when Robin stood up, the driver of the pickup truck, later identified as James Worley, asked if she was okay. He probably did the whole, eh, I didn't see you, are you okay? You know, that kind of thing. Now, she testified that she put her defenses down. That's what she said. She was just like, oh, okay, well, it wasn't on purpose kind of thing. She told him, yeah, I think I'm okay. I'm good. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, he hit her on the back of the head with a hammer. Okay. Put her in a stranglehold or a chokehold. He then held a screwdriver to her throat and threatened to kill her if she did not get into his truck. Now, James did overpower her did get her into the truck. He attempted to handcuff her hands behind her back, but he was only able to place one handcuff on her right wrist. Now, during the struggle, a motorcyclist saw the commotion and stopped to help her. Kudos to that guy. Let's uh, give a round of applause to someone actually going out of their way to help, okay? She was able to get out of his pickup truck and run onto the street up to the motorcyclist who took her home. After what just happened, you think that you wouldn't trust anybody, but when you got somebody that's trying to save your life, you know what I mean? I, I would have done the same thing. Now, later that day, Robin identified James as her attacker. Law enforcement officers were unable to unlock the handcuff attached to her wrist with keys that they had. So she literally still had this handcuff on her wrist this entire time. Um, her injuries were a skull fracture and a concussion from the hammer blow. Okay, so he did break her skull. He ended up pleading guilty to the abduction and was sentenced between four to ten years in prison. And guess what? Released after three years. Okay. Didn't even get his four-year minimum. He was just released. Now, um, Robin states, quote, I can't go bird watching." I can't go hiking, and I love to be in the woods alone, and I can't. He stole that from me, end quote. Now, um, after knowing this, you would think the police would be like, ooh, okay, but we're getting there, okay? So jumping back into our story here, okay? Now, when James was being interviewed, he did give up you know, that the information from earlier, okay? But then he also said two things that struck officers kind of weird, right? Somebody doesn't just say this, okay? If you're not guilty, if you're not, 
you know, worried about something, you're not just gonna be like, oh, well, I didn't steal anything or kill anyone, and how do you even kidnap someone or take someone on a motorcycle? That's what James said to the police officers, and police was like, eh, excuse me? Okay. Now, with that, they started looking at him. They noticed he had some really new, fresh marks on his arms. And they looked down, and they saw bruising on his legs. And immediately, they were like, mm, search warrant. <laughs> okay? So they did obtain a warrant. They did search his property. In certain areas of his home, just his house, he was extremely uncomfortable. Horrible body language, okay? Showing that he was uncomfortable with officers being in the areas. Now, and that is per court documents. This is what the police assessed, like they saw whenever they were he was taking, you know, them around the house per their search warrant. Now, with the search, they found rope, tape, zip ties, handcuffs, guns, ammo, recording devices, of course with film, which was all over the property, and concluded from cell phone records that James was at the scene of the abduction nearly two hours during the time Sierra went missing. So not only did they find that disturbing evidence, okay, they also found, after digging around, that he told a court-mandated therapist after that previous conviction, whenever he tried to abduct Robin, he told them that he learned from each abduction he had done and the next one he was going to bury. Now, with that in mind, each abduction, question mark, okay? Like, how many abductions has this man done? First off, no one has been able to say for sure now, police do speculate he has done multiple, not just the two, Robin and Sierra, but he has done multiple, okay? That is speculation of police, not me, but police officers. Now, not only did they find that out, okay, when searching his property in a barn, they found something horrifying, and that was a makeshift dungeon. And when I say dungeon, <laughs> I mean, a literal dungeon, chained on the walls, etc. Like, we're gonna get into it, but it was very upsetting for officers. Now, the dungeon was hidden behind some, like, tall hay bales in the barn, so it was, like, purposely hidden from, you know, someone just happened to walk in the barn, they ain't gonna notice it kind of thing. Now, I read, like, two to three days worth of court documents to get this information, okay? So, I am going to list every single piece of evidence that the police officers in court, um, you know, like, documented. So, we're about to go over that now. Um, probably about halfway through of this, like I said, we are going to have to probably do two parts. So far, I've been recording about three hours, two hours, three hours. So, you know, after a while, my voice starts kind of going out, your, your throat starts hurting. So, um, we're probably going to break it in two, but we're going to get as far as we can. So, let's get into the evidence here. So, piece one, okay, this is North Barn evidence. That's what they labeled it as. 
Investigators found an inflated air mattress behind stacked straw bales. Okay, so behind some hay bales, they saw a mattress. James told them, oh, yeah, I mean, sure. But the only DNA you're going to find on that is me and my mom's. Which, let me tell you, is lies. Okay, because after testing Sierra's DNA and testing the mattress, her DNA was found on a piece of duct tape and on the inflatable mattress. Just FYI. Now, after removing the hay bales inside the barn, investigators found a roll of black duct tape. They also found a piece of white rope and a trash bag containing adult diapers. Now, investigators also discovered a carpet-lined chest freezer that had been buried into the floor. The floor of the freezer was wet and contained some straw. They also found a motorcycle visor and what appeared to be a drop of blood on the south wall of the barn, approximately 33 inches above the floor. Inside, they found a green crate. Um, they found more adult diapers, a bag containing bondage clothing, restraints, a roll of white clothesline, latex gloves, clear plastic bags containing women's lingerie and clothing, a piece of duct tape with straw, hair, and other debris on it, so it was stuck to it, okay? Uh, brown rope, white socks, a bag for storing the air mattress, and a pink sex toy. The pink underwear, also found, had a reddish-brown stain on it, and it tested positive, presumptively, okay, for blood. So, not looking too good for James, okay? Um, now, he also had, like, a small business he did, which was, like, a repair shop. So, this is found inside of his machine-slash-repair-shop evidence. That is what police labeled it. That's what we're going with. So, inside a machine shop on the property, investigators found his motorcycle, which had pollen and weed stuck to it, more adult diapers, a tool board that had a compartment for ammunition, handcuff keys, two sets of handcuffs with keys tied to them, a zip tie, and a bottle of bleach. Moving on to the residence, okay, so like his house, um, they found some additional adult diapers in the kitchen, the living room, and two bedrooms. This man had a shit ton of adult diapers, mind you, okay? And then in the laundry room, um, they found some more. Now, Special Agent Roberts found a gray t-shirt. The size was extra large. It was in the washing machine. Um, debris present on the left sleeve was still there, and the shirt was still damp. Now... So she did look at it, she took it out, looked at it. They also recovered a dirty pair of men's black denim jeans from his bedroom. And investigators also found a computer tower and a pair of black boots caked with mud. Now, Agent Roberts testified that James gave law enforcement the clothing he was wearing July 19th, which included a cream-colored extra-large shirt. Now on to the vehicles, okay? A red Chevrolet S10 pickup truck and a green Dodge Dakota pickup truck, they were both searched July 21st. Although, there was no rain recently, okay? The red pickup truck was wet and still had water in the bed of the truck. They did notice that. Now, officers recovered the following items from the red pickup truck. 
can of pepper spray in the driver's side door pocket, a black ski mask, work gloves, an ear warmer, a roll of duct tape, seven 24-inch zip ties in the rear pocket of the passenger seat, three of which had already been connected, which after finding out what he did, that's kind of creepy, okay? Um, from the green pickup truck, this is what they collected there, which was a white rope bundled with black electric tape, zip ties under the driver's side seat, and the floor mat on the driver's side, okay? Now, agents compared standard impressions from the tires of his red and green trucks, okay? Both trucks, they had cast tire impressions done, and, um, when they compared that to the scene the you know the crime scene county road six when they done the tire impression casting over there they determined that they were consistent with the make and model of two tires on a green pickup truck so i mean can't really refute that evidence right he's just gonna have to kind of accept what he did at this point because that's a lot of evidence so far Now, um, we're going to get into finding Sierra, okay? I must say, I must warn you, the way she was found is pretty upsetting. So, um, if you haven't gathered, he does like to um, gag and bond and all that kind of stuff. So, just be aware that we are going to get into that, okay? Now, on July 22nd, a volunteer searcher named Scott Huddock was driving south on County Road 7 when he noticed an area that was disturbed in the cornfield on the east side of the road. Scott noticed 18-inch wide drag marks in the dirt. He followed the drag marks for about maybe 20 to 25 yards when he noticed that the dirt looked as if, quote, someone took a shovel, dug a hole, and reburied it. Now, this was not the burial site, but he was looking around the area. He did see a yellowish latex glove lying on the ground in between the road and the cornfield. Now, subsequent DNA testing revealed that the glove contained a mixture of DNA profiles, with Sierra and James being included with an expected frequency of 1 in 6,000. Now, the 1 in 6,000 frequency statistic is considered a low frequency. The forensic scientist who tested, uh, excuse me, testified at trial explained that the frequency was lower due to the sample being a partial profile. Now, later that day, investigators located the burial site on the west side of County Road 7. They located the site after noticing a disheveled section of corn maybe about three to four feet um, of corn was kind of like missing out of the field. It was just like a, almost like an empty hole. Um, so when investigators began excavating the site, they could smell decomposing remains. Um, as police officers say, you know, that smell you can never really um, forget. So when they smelt it, they immediately knew. Sierra's body was covered in dirt with her wrists handcuffed behind her back, her ankles bound together with duct tape, and her feet bound to her hands with rope. 
So she was essentially hogtied. She was laying on her stomach with her head turned to the side. A rubber cone-shaped dog toy, which was secured with a shoelace tied at the back of her head. Almost like a ball gag, right? Um, it had been used to gag her and there was straw in her hair. She was dressed in a lace-colored brassiere, handcuffs, a rope, and an adult diaper. There was a key attached to the handcuffs. And that's what officers had said. Um, we're going to get into the autopsy. Um, now, I believe it was important to put this in here because without this, you wouldn't really know the manner of death. Um, just kind of be aware. It can be a little upsetting, okay? But let's get into it. So, the autopsy, okay? This was done by Dr. Cynthia Beezer from the Lucas County Coroner's Office, and she conducted Sierra's autopsy July 25th, 2016. She testified that she was 5'4", weighed about 122 at the time of her death. Dr. Beezer measured her oral cavity and the dog toy and found that they were about the same size. After removing the dog toy, Dr. Beezer noted that her upper left medial incisor was broken. And she had an opinion, to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, that Sierra's tooth had been broken by the dog toy when it was inserted into her mouth. So he forcefully put it into her mouth, breaking her tooth. Just to simplify. Now, the dog toy filled the oral cavity, okay? Completely cut off her ability to breathe. It was in Dr. Beezer's opinion that her death would have occurred 10 minutes due to asphyxiation. So, the dog toy essentially suffocated her to death. And on her testimony and in her autopsy report, she put the cause of death asphyxia due to the mechanical obstruction of her mouth. So, now, um, guys, I hate to do it to you. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger but uh we're gonna do part two february 13th on monday um it's been over four hours uh my voice is getting tired and i don't want to give you um you know bad quality podcast as we go forward in this long long story of sierra jogging so we're going to cut it here um make sure you go to instagram i will be posting um evidence photos that i found um of course some beautiful photos of sierra some ugly photos of james okay because he doesn't deserve anything um anyway as we continue our story february 13th we'll learn more about dna testing the court proceedings um some you know scholarships and other stuff that happened since Sierra had passed, um, some nonprofits, etc., etc. So just hang in there. I know it's a cliffhanger, but you know, we're gonna do two parts, okay? So I hope you guys enjoyed the first part of this podcast. Please join the Facebook group, please join us on Instagram. You know, stay alive, stay spooky, and see you on February 13th. <laughs>